0: Guys, I hope you have been seeing as we've kind of journeyed all over the map scripture-wise this past year that this, this reality is, is true, that we do worship the same God we've seen in the scripture, that, I mean, as John said and as the Word says, He is the same. Um, it's been fun. It's been fun to walk with you guys through... I mean books that I had probably studied with Exodus and Hebrews that are they're just they're more difficult to to the eye than they look, but when you unpack them, you start to see no our our God really is the same. He has been after the same thing ever since the very beginning, and today we're actually going to look at that in a different light in the book of Malachi I uh, didn't Mean to throw y'all a curveball. It just kind of lined up that we were only going to get three weeks into Hebrews before I said, okay, now we're actually going to do something different for the whole month of December. But we are going to go through each Sunday, just a little bit as we kind of get in the Advent season, preparing for Christmas, we're going to walk through the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. Because Malachi, he's got a good word for where we tend to be around the holidays. Why? So Malachi is He's the last prophet in the Old Testament. last like he's literally located at the end of the Old Testament, but also he's one of the ones that prophesied at the end of, of the Israel history we see in Scripture, right? After him, there was the silence until the Messiah came. So the word that God brought to his people through Malachi is kind of the thing he wanted them to chew on and to remember as they're waiting for the Messiah to come. Now Malachi, He speaks to Israel. Israel is stuck in a, I don't know, they're not in a really good place at this point. So Israel had been taken over by Babylon, spent a couple years, uh, a couple decades and generations basically in slavery to Babylon. Babylon gets kicked out by Persia and Israel goes, well, this is kind of nice. You know, the people that were beaten up on us and had been not valuing us have now been kicked to the side. But Persia ends up not being any better. Persia almost makes Israel think things are going to get better because they let the Israelites who had been kind of scattered in Babylon, they, Persia lets them go back. And we're, we're told, if you've ever read through Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, you know, the story of oh Israel goes back, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Like, all of that takes place while they're under Persian authority. And they get this idea of, okay, like, We're going back to the homeland. We're starting to do the right things. They reinstitute the sacrifices. Like God's people are starting to do what they think they're supposed to do again. And so they're kind of waiting then for a sign from God that, hey, now things are going to be really good, just like they used to be. And the sign they're waiting for comes from some of their other prophets. If you read books, not books, if you read the prophets of Haggai or Zechariah, Israel is waiting to say, okay, God, You've put us back in the right place. You've helped us do the right things. Now we expect we're going to get a little bit of earthly power. right? Like, like They're ready for the nation to be rebuilt. They're, they're saying if we are the right people doing the right things, then God must be elevating us so that like, we have some sort of status or authority on the, on the earth. And it's not happening. Israel's not seeing it happen. They're waiting for a Messiah, but what they're expecting is a little bit more power. In fact, under Persia, they realize things have actually gotten worse. No, their their stuff is not getting taken away like it did with Babylon, but, but who they are. One scholar I read put it like this. They said, Persia didn't use physical force to oppress Israel, but they destroyed Israel through subtle idolatry. All right, they didn't take away Israel's stuff, but they kind of took away their will to be who they, they thought they were supposed to be. So Israel is sitting here going, man, the future we thought we had coming is not coming. I'm not going to dive into it too much today, but their idea of the future they thought was coming was never going to come. They were waiting for a future that was never going to come because God did not have that for them. They were looking back at their past saying, man, we, not under Babylon, but even pre-Babylon, man, things were way better than they are right now. And when you kind of get in that mentality of the future is not what I want it to be, I miss the past, but that we can't go back to that, it led God's people to be really bitter, really vindictive, really frustrated, really anxious in the time that they were living. And God, as he's speaking through Malachi, almost kind of tells Israel, like, guys... I need you to wake up. I need you to not be fixated on this vision of the future that is is not even one I have for you. I need you not to be so nostalgic for the past that you're just frustrated at everything. He says, I need you to be present with me right here, right now. And I was kind of alluding to this earlier, but when when we come across big milestones, things that take place every year. Like, it's easy for us to look back and say, okay, what happened at Christmas last year? You know, is it, is it better than what happened this year? You know, am I not going to get to see people that I saw last year, which is a bummer? Or am I saying, hey, Christmas is coming in three weeks. I have these big travel plans. I hope nothing goes wrong, and I hope everything holds up. Like, we get in thinking the future's going to be one way, or I really miss the past. And when, we, when we're not focused on our present, God says, you're missing out. You're missing out on life with me. Church, as your pastor, I don't want you to miss out on life with God. But even more so as a follower of Christ, I don't want our world to miss out on God because either we're too focused on our future or on our past that we aren't living present with God. Because if God says, this is what what I'm after, which I'm I'm foreshadowing a little bit. But this is the direction he's going to walk us through as we go through the book of Malachi. There is a lot of purpose God has for his people in being present with him where they are. Essentially what he's doing is he's calling out where their idolatry of identity has taken place. They haven't lost their stuff like they did under Babylon, but they have forgotten who they are. So we're going to see in Malachi this morning, and church, I hope that this would be an encouragement to you. The way that God confronts us in that place, if we have forgotten who we are, what he does is he reminds us of our value to him and our identity in him. So another way of saying it is God shows up and he reminds us of who we are and of who he is. And when we are reminded of these things, that, that actually changes the way we live. It changes the way we respond. So we're going to be in Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We're going to hit the whole chapter this morning. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet yeah, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, oh, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despised my name. But you say, well, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, well, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I mean, just real quick. This is God talking to his people, okay? He, he is not pleased. This is not God talking to you know, people who have no clue who he is or people that you know, aren't right with him. This is God speaking to his own chosen nation. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, well, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring is your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Father, we come to you this morning just with a lot on our hearts. Lord, we know that this is a time of of year. I mean, it's a season, Lord. This is not just like something we we'll address with you today and be fine tomorrow god this is a it tends to be a season where we we really wrestle with remembering who we are god in light of who you are and father you you know us you, you know us so well because you've made us you you see how we wrestle with that father you hear our hurt and our anxiety our frustration at the things we see, our our hopes and dreams for things that aren't happening, the things we miss about whatever seasons you've allowed us to have in the past, God, you, you see all of this come into our hearts and come into our minds. Father, you know how that affects how we respond to things in the present. Father, forgive us that we are not often with you as we should be. So, Father, may we receive I mean, the encouragement you are bringing to your people in Malachi. God, you are not waving a finger at us, expecting us to do more. But God, you are calling us back to you, to be reminded of who you are and how that shapes who we are. So may we hear this this morning from Malachi. In your holy name we pray. Amen. One thing I didn't point out, because I wanted you to get to hear it, when you read Malachi it sounds different than most other books in the Bible, and it's intentional. If you heard it, it's kind of like a a back and forth. And it kind of, it's intentional because it speaks to what God is really after as he's talking his people, that he's not just showing up and demanding, you are doing the wrong thing, and if you don't fix it and get back to me, then here's what I'm going to do. He shows up, and he has a conversation with his people. Right, speaking to the relational heart he has. But it, it shows us, and we're going to see this if we look just at the first five verses, that what God's really after is not so much you're doing the wrong thing, we need to fix it. He's saying, you have forgotten who you are. And I've got to get you to remember your, the heart that I made you to have if you're going to see any change happen in your life. If you look at the first five verses, the very first thing God says to his people in verse 2, is I've loved you. We're going to come back to that, but what a, what a place to start, right? God has every right to be deeply frustrated and offended with his people. We saw later in the chapter, yeah, he is offended. But the very first words out of his mouth to his people, I've loved you. So we'll hold on to that. And then he addresses the very real question. Israel says, hold up, hold up. We've been under bondage to do very powerful, very oppressive, you know, worldly governments in in Babylon and in Persia. We've been trying our hardest to do all the right things. We have promises that we want to see fulfilled that you aren't fulfilling. God, how in the world could you say you love us? I mean, this is is where Israel's at in verse 2. And then God shows, well, okay... Here's how I've loved you. And it's not in the fulfillment of the promises they think they're supposed to get, like the getting earthly power. And it's not in in reminding them of a past season that they came out of. God says, Here's how you know that I've loved you. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, if we're reading this in in our English and our Western American mind, we're going, oh. What does that mean? Why, why did God pick this? This is a reference back to Genesis 27. If you remember uh, the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Esau had something that Jacob didn't have. He had the birthright. And this birthright that God had in store for Esau, it was passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. It's, it's the covenant, right, of being made right with God. God shows up to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to set you aside from the nations. I'm going to set you aside from the rest of the world. You're going to bear my image before everybody else so that the world knows who I am so that they can come be made right with me. You and your family are going to start this, Abraham. And Abraham says, okay, Uh, He doesn't say okay right away. It takes him like 10 chapters of Genesis to finally come around on this. But this this is the promise God has given to Abraham. Abraham has passed it to Isaac. It would now go to Isaac's oldest son, which would be Esau. And in the ancient world, the oldest son got a double portion of the blessing. Like, it was going to go to him. And Esau sells it to Jacob, if you remember, for a bowl of stew. Now that you can imagine would be a little bit offensive to God. That God has this covenant promise, I'm going to give you this, you're going to work with me to show the whole world, Esau, you and your family are going to help the world see who I am. And Esau says, I would rather have a bowl of soup than do that. We're told in Genesis 27, and and sometimes we, we may read into Jacob a little bit more than is in there, Jacob wanted the birthright. Jacob's name means deceiver, and so sometimes we think, well, he's just trying to cheat Esau out. And some details will come up that he he may be along those lines. But Genesis 27 in this story doesn't tell us anything other than Jacob wants the birthright. And so if God is sitting there saying, here's one guy who, whether it's good motives or not, he really wants to be in my covenant. And here's this guy over here who should want it, but he'd rather have a bowl of soup. Which one is God's love, God's power going to rest on? Very clearly, God says, look, Israel, look, 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 look. If you remember who you were, you were the people who wanted to be with me. And because you wanted to be with me, I chose to work with you. This this story is taking the people of God saying, that's who we were. We came from Jacob. We were the people who were supposed to be bearing God's image to the world, like this, It's it wasn't just a an act of obedience or something, we're supposed to, do, it, it's part of who we are. And God reminds them, he says, look, not only have I loved you, the Hebrew there being ahav, which translates over into the Greek as agape, essentially, which is probably what we're more familiar with hearing, this this type of love that's more than just emotional, it says, I'm at peace with, I am right with one. He says, not only have I loved, I've made peace with you, Jacob, I work against, I, I am, Esau I have hated, verse 3. That Hebrew word, sane means like, he has made Esau an enemy. This is not just like, I'm mad at Esau for not choosing my birthright and getting a bowl of soup. He, he says, no, Esau chose to be an enemy that day when he sold my covenant for a bowl of stew. He says, look, Israel, that heart that you had at the beginning, that's what I've wanted all along. You see people that have different hearts. I'm not pleased with that. I don't work with that. He even says in verse 5, look, if you remember this heart that you were supposed to have, you will say... Great is the Lord beyond the board of Israel. You'll be drawn back into this relationship, this life that I have for you. It's it's a picture that God shows up and He says, because you are maybe not living as you ought to, God's not pointing out all the different things they're doing wrong. He says, your heart is not even in the right place. God says, I have to fix that. I have to make you right with me. You have to remember who I am and who I have made you to be. If we're going to have any kind of salvation, any kind of reconciliation, any kind of transformation taking place. It was the heart issue that God is confronting. And and so just notice, notice exactly what God calls out. How does he address the heart issue? How does he speak? I mean, put ourselves in there, church. How does he speak to us today? Right? In in the midst of our sin, what does God tell us? Verse 2, I have loved you. I was trying to think this week of the last time when I got into a confrontation with someone or just even an argument, and I started it with, okay, before we get into this, I've loved you. Like That's just not how we tend. We start to jump into it by saying, okay, here's all the things I need to make sure I get across. And if you're like me, sometimes you don't listen very well because you're too busy making sure you've said everything that needs to come out. Not actually listening. We don't start with this mindset of, hey, but I've loved you. I've loved you. What else does God tell Israel? He says, I've chosen you. He says, you you had the heart that I was after, so I said, I will work with you. He says, that that is what, that's what drew you to me. I've chosen you to bear my image. So he, he values, he identifies his people as his beloved. Like I have, I have made you, right? Do you not think I loved what I have made? Do you not think I would want to work with what I've made? And if you pair this with Genesis one, you realize he's not just talking about a specific nation, Israel. He's talking about all his creation that would not God have this same heart for you and for me today. God says, this is how, who I have made you to be. If it continues, it continues in verses 6 through 11. This is not just something Malachi starts with and then moves on. If you look at the next chunk of verses, verse 6, God is still reminding Israel, now he's saying who he is to them. He calls himself their father and their master. And he says, look, you have not honored me or respected me, the English, there is fear, but it's it's this idea of awe and respect, giving glory to God. Says, look, you've you may have gone back to the right place, you may be doing all the right things, but your heart is not in it, and I can tell. And by calling them His Father, or that by calling Israel their Father, His their Master, this is not just some random words. Okay, Israel would have immediately been, oh, we know where that comes from. If you think back to Exodus at one point, when Moses is trying to describe to Pharaoh why the Israelites, right? Because Pharaoh goes, who are you again? Like, what nation? Are you the, the slave? Why? Why should I let you go? Moses tells Pharaoh, you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is the son sons and daughters of this covenant, right? So God says, no, you have forgotten. You've forgotten who you are. And I, if when he shows up and says, I'm your father, I'm your master, they're saying, oh, we've heard that before. Because it's not just an exodus. Moses keeps this imagery going in Deuteronomy. The, the prophet Jeremiah used this language all throughout, calling him the children of God, the children of God, the son of God. David does this in the psalms like this is baked into the hebrew culture they would have known when malachi shows up and says god is identifying himself as a father and a master they go oh no you're right that is who you are and in verses 7 through 10 malachi points out on behalf of god look you've you've rebuilt the temple you've restarted the sacrificial system your heart's not been in it, right? Like, you're saying that you want to do all the right stuff. You're saying you're bringing the best to the Lord, but you really haven't. As I was reading it this week, I thought some of you may pick up on, there's a little bit of Ananias and Sapphira going in there, right? The couple in Acts that they sold their land. They brought it before the church. They said, this is how much money we made. And they were completely lying. And it doesn't go very well for them. Well, it's not going very well for the people of God that they're, Showing up to the temple saying, this is the best of what we have. Knowing very well they got something much better sitting at home. God says, look, this is, <laughs> this is offensive to me. He points around and says, you are giving more honor to your political leaders than to me in verse 8. He says, would you dare show up to your governor? Would you dare show up to someone who has an earthly authority position with the same mentality that you show up to me. God says, of course you wouldn't. You know that would look bad on you. He says, you're showing more respect to your political leaders than to me. God says, I'd rather have nothing than this, verses 9 and 10. So God shows up and he says, look, this is who I am, Israel. Because you've forgotten this, this is what you're doing. This is what you look like. So how does God respond to this? In verses 11 through 14, he says, okay, let me remind you who I am. Let me remind you who you are. He shows up and says, "My name will be great among the nations." Verse 11. He says, "Look, I'm not just trying to work with you, Israel. I'm trying to bring all of my creation to be right with me again. And since I've chosen you to work with me, you got to take this calling seriously." He says, "You you are you're looking at me in verse Believe it's verse 13. They say they snort. I just, I love when some of this language gets into scripture. They snort at the idea that living for God is worth it. They say, What a weariness this is. God, I don't, is this really even worth it? He says, Oh, yes, I am worth it. Verse 14. But it's the same pattern. Same pattern. When God knows his people aren't living right with him. He's not showing up and pointing out all the different things they're doing wrong. He says, look, you were made for something. I have to remind you what you were made for and who I am if we're going to work to fix things together. George, there is something about being reminded of who we are that shakes us out of an idolatry of identity, both in how we relate to ourselves and relate to others. There was a season in uh, my life and one of one of my many different past jobs where uh, there was a coworker that I, I saw him as like an older brother figure. I mean, he's about seven, eight years older than I was. He had the same job that I had, just at a different place. so I, I respected whatever he was telling me. but it, it kind of got to the point. I mean things were things at the job were going fairly well, but I just I just started to get irritated with him like. You know, over time, the more he would speak in and be like, you're just telling me what to do because I'm younger than you and you had the job first. And so I just, I allowed myself to get irritated with him. Well, then, then the company went through some, some, like a big rough patch. Like, we, we lost a lot of staff members. We went through a lot of turnover. And during that season, I really started to feel like, man, I'm, I'm a victim. I got this guy over here telling me what to do. I got all this other chaos going on around me. And I started to see like, I'm just, I'm just trying to do my best and everything around me is falling apart. Now when I got into that place, how hard do you think I worked to go back to that friend and say, you know what, okay, I, I know you well enough to know you are not telling me what to do. You're treating me like a younger brother saying, hey bro, I have walked in your shoes and I've seen some stuff, I just wanna share this with you. I did not work hard at all. In fact, not only did I let that relationship get worse, I started saying to God what Israel was saying. I said, God, how can you say that you are loving me and pouring into me when I'm watching all this stuff happening? God, how could, you have, how could you be so cruel to give me a guy who I looked to as a brother at the beginning and now, now he's just telling me what to do and that relationship has been, you know, I, I thought it was getting ruined. It's like, what have I done to deserve it? the same language, that Israel has with God here in Malachi, I start to say the same things back to God. And I had another friend that knew me and my brother well enough to say, oh, dude, you have got to make peace here. Like, you are not working hard at this. You are letting something way smaller, a miscommunication, be a reason that you're not even going to make peace with this guy. And I, my response to them was, well, I... I don't need to do that. Like, do you see what they're doing to me now? If they come to me, sure, I'll listen. You know, and we get it. We get that mindset, right? If if they come and make the first step to me to apologize, now we can start talking about. But have you seen what they do? I don't need to go. I don't need to take that first step. So when it was, when it was in context of just pointing at me, saying what I needed to do differently. It just made me even more resolved to say, no, I don't. But that friend that was giving me advice, finally, they, they got so fed up with me, they said, man, you have forgotten who you are, and you have forgotten who that guy was. And something about hearing that was enough to just, it, it snaps you back. And I thought, it's, it's not really a surprise, that's what God does with Israel, He shows up. His people, they're not paying attention. They've given up caring. And he says, look, look at our history. Look at how I've loved you. Look at how I've chosen you. Look at how I've delivered you. Look how I've treated you. Look how I've saved you physically, spiritually, everywhere. Look at what I have, how I've been with you. Do you really want to justify yourself against me? Is is that the attitude you want to take? And I realized, you know, this guy before any of the annoying things happened, before all the stuff with the company went down, like, that guy was my brother. And I saw him as a brother, and I treat him like a brother. That guy would invite me to his house. Like, our families would interact together. Like, he clearly cared about me. And yet I was willing to overlook all of that, everything he had done for me, purely because he wasn't talking to me like I wanted to be talked to. And I realized the same thing with God. Okay, God... Have you ever had a season in my life where, I, where you just made things hard on me just to punish me for something? No, I've not seen God to do that. God, why, why am I treating you like this when I know this is not how you've worked in my life? You, God told Israel here in Malachi, I'm your father and your master. I've, you've forgotten who you are. Well, I had forgotten who my brother was, right? He was not the enemy, Church, it is very easy for us when we have tension with one another to start viewing people as the enemy. Yet Paul puts puts it like this in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm he says look there's there's no way you're going to look at your brother and put that on him he is not the one, he is equally suffering in, in what the company is going through you are not going to throw him away for that once i started to realize that's who that guy is to me and i had no leg to stand on to say i should not try to be making peace with him as much as I possibly can. And I love God even shows up to Israel and says, like, I know the big question on your hearts, really what it boils down to when you get to the heart issue, you're going, is this even worth it? And God simply says, yes, it is. I realized I, from a very pragmatic sense, I would not gain anything if I lost that relationship with a friend, Right? Spiritually, though, what was I going to lose if I was cutting myself apart from God or even just allowing some spirit of disunity between myself and this brother? Like, it's not, it's not an exaggeration and it's not an accident that when Scripture talks about separation between us and God, it's in context of death. That for you and I, like our hurt and our bitterness and our frustration leads us to divide from people, and we look for reasons why we should be able to break off. To say, you don't look like me, you don't sound like me, I don't understand how you could think like that, I have nothing to do with you. The separation piece, Scripture likens it to death. It's why God shows up and says, I'm the God who has created life. I'm not going to push you away from me. I'm going to pull you back. And church, it's what we get to celebrate each year at Christmas. Right? That God has looked on us, on all of his creation. He has said, I have made you for a purpose. I have made you to bear my image. I see that you are separated. You have broken apart from me in your sin. The Old Testament just shows time after time, after time, after time, after time of God showing up and saying, come be made right, come be reconciled, the word I've used a lot this past year, come be reconciled with me. He sends pillars of cloud, he sends pillars of fire, he sends family, he sends famines, he sends prophets, priests, kings, he throws everything he has at the book, and they'll get it for a season. But what sticks is when God shows up himself, because we finally had God with us. We we were confronted with Christ. Here he is in this baby, and as a young man, then as an older man, here is God himself with us, showing us what he made us for, showing us how he desired us to interact with the rest of his creation. Now we get to see it. And in Christ's death and resurrection, which we get to celebrate on Easter, now we get to see how this reconciliation is possible. There is no more need for a better separation, church. There is now joyful unity possible in Christ. So this morning, as you find yourself in the holiday season, maybe thinking about the future or the past and wishing you were somewhere other than in this moment, God says, look, this... This is the life I have for you. When you are reminded of who you are, when you're reminded of who I am, being present with me right here, right now, this is the joy. This is the best I can give you. And so, churches, we are eagerly anticipating the birth of our coming Messiah as we celebrate it on Christmas. Let's pray this morning. We say, O source of all good, what shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts? Thine own dear Son, begotten, not created, my Redeemer, my proxy, my surety, my substitute, his self-emptying incomprehensible, his infinity of love beyond the heart's grasp. Herein is wonder of wonders, that he came below to raise me above, that he was born like me, that I might become like him. Here in His love, that when I cannot rise to Him, He draws near on wings of grace to raise me to Himself. Here in His power, when deity and humanity were infinitely apart, He united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. Here in His wisdom, when I was undone, with no will to return to Him and no intellect to devise recovery, He came, God incarnate, to save me to the uttermost. As a man to die my death, to shed satisfying blood on my behalf to work out a perfect righteousness for me. O God, take me in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge my mind. Let me hear good tidings of great joy. In hearing these, believe, rejoice, praise, adore. My conscience bathed in an ocean of repose, my eyes uplifted to a reconciled father. Place me with ox, with donkey, with camel, with goat, to look with them upon my Redeemer's face, and in him account myself delivered from sin. Let me with Simeon clasp the newborn child to his heart, embrace him with undying faith, exulting that he is mine and I am his. In him, in Christ, Lord, you have given me so much that heaven can give no more. your name we pray, Father.